fulfilled in your hearing today. And the rest of the people are like, you know, it's your, it your turn, Jesus, and you pick that. And then you say it's been fulfilled. And they look at each other in wonder, and they say, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Like, so I think sometimes we look back on Advent, and we think, well, it was just so clear, you know, the suffering servant and the, you know, the, the messianic uh, prophecies and predictions. Like, it's just, it's just all so clear. And in the second coming like that, too, it's like, I don't think it was in the first. I don't think a lot of people got it, uh, got it quite right. So Mark 6 is this not is is not this the carpenter? Um, notice he didn't even say the carpenter's son. It was the carpenter, uh, he, Jesus, the carpenter, uh, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph. Hey, we know his family and Judas and Simon. These are his brothers, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Um, so not everybody was in unified agreement that this is how it should go, and that Jesus should be applying those particular scriptures to himself. Um, I think. Eschatology has what we would call a typological character in nature to it. Uh, typological meaning something that signifies something else in the future. So a, a type, uh, something like the sacrificial system would be a type. It's, um, it was a, a ritual, the ceremony that was performed, and it prefigures something else. So in order for something to be a type, there needs to be historical correspondence and escalation. All right. So like the sacrificial system is an easy example. There was sacrifice that was made. Jesus, he's the sacrifice that was made, historical correspondence, actual sacrifice, actual sacrifice, and escalation though. He's not just a sacrifice. He's not just another bull or ram or lamb. He is the final sacrifice. So typological character to it. We're typological sometime um, as well. And I think eschatology sort of has that. So we saw that a little bit uh, in Matthew 24 this morning. I, I do think um, as you look at, at that, and I, I think Adam's teaching was helpful. I think it's sometimes like the mountain peaks. I'll use that a few times. Um, the mountain peaks look right beside each other, but as you weave your way up into the mountains, you, you turn the corner and they're this far apart. Um, and you didn't realize that. And so I do think there's some overlay of eschatology passages. And I do think sometimes there's a, there's a near and a far um, give you an example. I wouldn't plan on talking about this one, but I think it fits. Um, Isaiah 7 uh, predicts that there's going to be a son that's born. Right? We're familiar with that one. Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, there's going to be a son that's born. You know what happens a chapter or two later in Isaiah? A son's born. <laughs> like, now, was that fulfillment? Like, well, not ultimate. <laughs> it's typological. It's, it, yeah, there's a son born, but there's another one, a better one coming. So I think eschatology sort of has that flavor to it. Um, there's something better going to happen. I shared a drawing with you a couple months ago when we were looking at um, another sermon. I think it's sort of like this. So this one's interesting to me because it's actually in the same passage, um, Zechariah. Um, so if you, if you look at, at what's going on in Zechariah, the first time Zechariah mentions this, he talks about the, the one coming on the uh, coming humbly, the triumphant entry, on the back of a foal. Well, we know obviously what that refers to. Well, a few chapters later, Zechariah is talking again. He talks about the one who's going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives, and the mount's going to split from the north to the south. Like, whoa, like that escalated quickly, literally. It, it escalated. There's something else going on. And so, but from the reader's perspective, if you were in Zechariah's shoes or you were a reader of Zechariah, you can't necessarily get that. Um, it, it maybe, maybe not in its full context and flavor. So I do think there's a little bit of that going on. 
All right, so those are some initial thoughts. I wanted to, part of this is going to be a little bit biographical uh, for me. I just want to tell you my story and kind of where I ended up, how I ended up, where I ended up as far as my understanding. So uh, Sunrise contacted me, got a note from our own Adam Mercero, and I said, who's this guy uh, trying to distract me with things? I got stuff to do um, over here. And I got an email. It was, a, it, was the question, it was a questionnaire, doctrinal statement, and just a little bit of information about the church. And I remember that questionnaire. It was 43 questions, good questions, and it caught my attention. Um, and that's actually what started the conversation with me coming here. There are a few questions there, and I actually went back and looked at my answers um, to those. And this was, this was in 2012 uh, now, so summer 2012. And I was just... Because uh, I remember, I remember there being some questions. So um, here was one of the questions. Question number sixteen: Give a concise summary of your views on the millennial kingdom and how your view affects your preaching and ministry. So my take: This was in 2012. I do take Revelation 20 literally. I believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. Eschatology is important and has big implications for ministry, but I do not think it's the most important issue. I think the biggest contrast with my view would be with a post-mill advocate, especially a theonomist. We'll talk about that in a minute. The world is not getting better. I do not believe I'm ushering in a golden age. Uh, this means that while we certainly can and should engage ourselves in social causes, these things ultimately will not fix the world. My understanding is this world will get fixed when King Jesus returns in Revelation 19. My preaching should declare this and as the only true hope, though uh, we certainly long to see the world uh, that we live in be a God-honoring place. So that was my answer then. I'm happy to report that I still completely agree with that. All right? I am just, I don't know, some of you are like, oh, what's happening here? <laughs> I, still on board. Thousand-year reign. I'm premillennial. Um, so, yes, still on board. Still on board with the primacy of the gospel. All right? Everybody can relax. The next question that I wanted to talk about, a uh, couple of them. Uh, give a concise summary of your view on covenantal versus dispensational theology and how your view affects your preaching and ministry. Now, y'all should just know that you have a church where elders actually ask questions like this, which is actually what caught my attention um, because I really appreciate the question. I'm like, well, these guys are serious. You know, they, they're serious about finding somebody that believes like they do. And so this was, it was good for me to see this. So my elusive, non-elusive answer I don't want to be elusive in my answer, but I'm not completely comfortable calling myself a covenantalist nor a dispensationalist because of all the baggage associated with the terms. I do, not, uh, I do think these issues are very important and will influence how one understands the different passages, not just eschatology. All right, and that's an important factor. I do believe that there is a future for literal ethnic Israel, Romans 11, and I believe Israel is currently largely in unbelief having rejected her Messiah. I believe that the church is the people of God. And does fit into God's plan in line with the Abrahamic covenant. All right, those are those. Every one of those phrases is actually like you double click on that, and there's a book uh, behind it. So, just know. I'm sure this question will require some explanation. Let me try to summarize by saying that I don't hold to as much continuity between covenants as a fully reformed theologian, capital R reformed theologian. I'm not quite as much on the discontinuity side as classical dispensationalists. All right, so those are all important terms um, as well that I'll talk about. And then, uh, so you'll see the date on that, July 5th, 2012. And I still agree with all of that um, as well, too. The difference is I, I think I found a home now, all right? So I was kind of homeless, um, wandering. Um, I think I found my people. Uh, so I'll tell you about that. 20, question 22. List any areas in which you may differ with Sunrise's statements on its mission and values and what we teach. 
Um, and so on that statement, there was one that talked about the pre-tribulational rapture. And I said, I'm no longer convinced of preacher of rapture. I'm still in the process of thinking through my position on this. Over the past few years, I've been looking at this issue. I've found reasons that I used to give for the preacher of rapture position to be lacking. There are a number of reasons for my hesitation on this. I'm glad to discuss. I have to admit, I hold my eschatology with somewhat open hand at this point. So that's, that's where I was. And um, I just share that not to, for no other reason than this. Um, the convictions that I'm going to share with you this afternoon, it, this didn't just happen last week, all right? This has been kind of brewing in me for a while, and I just, I just want you to know that, um, that this, this is a hard topic, and if you feel like, I don't know what in the world I am, um, you know, some, some people call themselves pan-millennialists, it's just all going to pan out in the end. Um, totally, I totally get that sentiment. It's hard. I think uh, a lot like thinking about... Eschatology is a little bit like some of you that are really into the market and economics and like market factors and things like that. Uh, you know, you, you levy this tariff and it makes a change on what you're trying to make a change, but it's like, what did I just do? You know, on the other end, um, and it's kind of like a big, uh, kind of like a big circle of marbles. It's like I stick one in this side. What I just bump something out, but I'm not quite sure exactly what. So. That's, uh, that's eschatology. Um, that's just the nature of it and the study of it. So I commend you for wanting to learn more. I think it's helpful and good. Um, it's right. Um, but at the same time, uh, don't, don't beat yourself up if you don't have all the answers um, to these questions. Uh, one other thing, just by way of intro, I wanted to say this afternoon, is this really isn't a stump Allen with question time um, I'm very stumped on a number of things, and I'll, I'll be glad to share this with you. It's not that hard to stump me, uh, truthfully. <laughs> this, uh, this, this topic's kind of difficult, um, and, I, and I don't mind admitting that. And uh, there's another book uh, called From, From Discontinuity to Continuity by uh, Ben Merkel. And I, I have a digital copy of that. I brought some other show-and-tell books, but I, I have a digital copy, so I don't, I don't have that one in hard copy. Um, Merkel says one of his purposes for writing the book is to help everyone see that no system is perfect. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. Um, I really do. So I, I do appreciate that. Okay, um, so let's get into some vocabulary. And this is where I don't know if this is going to take a while or just a minute, um, just because I want to talk about what these terms are, uh, because I'll be using them some. And then uh, if you have questions or want to you know, dive into any one of these, a little bit more detailed. Let's let's do it. Um, I'm glad to. Okay, so if you'll take your the timeline. When you think of eschatology, everybody thinks of timelines. You got to have a timeline going on in eschatology. So three different major positions, and then there's sort of subdivisions underneath that. Um, so let's let's just start. Let's start at the top. Uh, actually, I'll do it. Let's see if this is going to... Okay, if anybody didn't get one of these, we have some extra copies now in the back. David, David will grab them and bring one to you. Just put your hand up. Um, okay, let me see if this will let me do what I want to here. Okay, um, can you see that on the screen? Is that big enough? Or I guess you got a copy. You can kind of go back and forth. Although the, uh, you may not be able to read what's on the paper either, so. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We need like a, one of those big 11 by 17 deals, I guess. Okay, uh, so let's, let's talk about what's going on here. Um, when we talk about these terms, we're talking about pre, post, 
and amillennial. Okay, um, those all have to do with this time frame here, um, the millennium. Now, what you're going to notice on your chart here is that this one's actually the only one that really has a millennium. <laughs> all right, so why are we defining it by something that's not even there? Get to that in a second. Uh, so the millennium refers to the thousand-year period that's mentioned in Revelation uh, 21 through 6. All right? So it all spins out uh, Revelation 20, particularly 1 through 6. This is the only time in the Bible that the millennium is specifically mentioned in this way. Now, there are other passages, I think, refer to it. But specifically in this way, it's the thousand years. Um, it's the only time it's mentioned. Uh, this is a passage that talks about the binding of Satan, talks about this thousand-year reign um, that ultimately comes to an end uh, because of a rebellion of the people, which eventually ushers in the eternal state. All right, so what we're saying with premillennialism is that we believe Jesus is coming back before the millennium actually starts, okay? Um, Christ returns right there, okay? So we good? Everybody clear so far? Pretty easy. There's different brands within that, but let's... Circle back to that in a second. Let's talk about post-millennial. So post-millennial, they believe that we are in a period of what would be the millennium right now. But this is a time that's not marked off by a literal thousand years. Obviously, it's been more than a thousand years since. So that wouldn't work uh, as far as the timeline. But they're basically saying, and, and this, was a, this was a popular view um, kind of coming out of the Renaissance Reformation, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And it's amazing how cultural this movement is um, because in premillennialism too, I don't want like, to act like it's just the festival guys. So Postmill says that the gospel is going to continue to spread. All right, so like the passage that Adam talked about this morning, the gospel is going to be preached to all places. It's going to take root. There's going to be a transformation of society, and then Jesus is going to come in and set up the kingdom. So we're, we're kind of helping him get there. Uh, it starts here, and it's going to gradually improve until the second coming. All right, that's the post-mill position. Now, uh, let's talk about this last one, on millennialism. Um, and so in that, well, I'll come back to that. Um, on millennialism, it's, it's an unfair name, actually, to amillennialist. Because they're saying there is no millennium. All right? Ah is an alpha privative, is what it's called. Uh, it negates whatever it's in front of. All right? So um, an atheist, an atheist, it, it's, a, it's a no God person. All right? Theos, theos, God. So no God. Um, that's what the, the atheist is saying. So the amillennialist is saying there, there is no millennium. So we are in Revelation 20 right now. And actually, the post-mill would say Revelation 20 is happening right now um, as well. So both of those would be true. Um, Amiel, on the other hand, it, it's kind of an interesting thing because you can go either way. Um, there's people that call themselves optimistic amillennialist, which is sort of a mirror of post-mill. So, like, yeah, we don't think we're ushering in a golden age, but we can do a lot. We can do a lot. Um, you know, and we can, we can kind of get things done. Uh, here on the earth. So, you know, they're, whereas the post-mill guy is saying, no, we're going to make it like Christ, they're saying, yeah, it may not quite get there, but we can make it a little better. The 
pessimistic optimal, uh, amillennialist is saying, nah, it ain't, it ain't going it ain't getting any better until Jesus returns. Um, so those are kind of the two, two views um, within that. So let's go back to uh, pre-mill. Um, pre-mill, on the other hand, depending on your flavor and brand within the pre-mill position, premillennialism is, is the most pessimistic of the views. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's the Romans one of the views. Um, it's going to get bad, and when it gets bad, it's going to get worse, and when it gets worse, it's going to get worse. And then Jesus is going to come. And I'm very convinced of that piece of the puzzle at a minimum, just because I think when you look at the texts that talk about the return of Jesus, I ask the question, what type of world does it look like Jesus is returning to? The passage we looked at this morning, Mark 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, R1 and 2, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4. What t- what's the world like? What's the, what's the character and nature of the world? Well, it just doesn't seem like it's all butterflies and sunshine, um, the world that Jesus steps back into. So I really take issue with that. I don't think, it's a, I don't think the world's getting better. Um, and so that's, that's one, of the, one of the selling points, I think, and one of the reasons why it just matches the experience that we see, um, this premillennialism. Okay, um, is everybody good so far? Questions? So we haven't gotten into the subdivisions yet. Just out of curiosity, are there any names you could stick up there with those three uh, yeah. well-known authors or pastors that we could see? Yep, 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 we can do that. Um, so, actually, it may be easier, maybe easier to do that from here. Uh, so pre-millennial, uh, there's two different brands, dispensational pre-mill, historic pre-mill. So just to separate those out, dispensational pre-mill would be somebody like John MacArthur. Uh, some of you guys may be familiar with the ministry of uh, Feinberg out at Denver Seminary. Uh, Charles Ryrie, um, he's probably one that you, uh, many of you probably have the Ryrie Study Bible. Um, the old uh, Schofield Study Bible, anybody have one of those? Yep. All right. All right. You cut your teeth on this. But we're not even we're talking classical dispensationalism yeah. there, not even the more progressive movement that's kind of popular today. Um, yeah, Schofield. Um, who else in the dispensational camp? David Jeremiah. David Jeremiah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's a that's a good example. Yeah. Um, as far as historic pre-mill, uh, John Piper would be historic pre-mill. Um, Al Mohler would be historic pre-mill. Wayne Grudem, historic pre-mill. Think of who else. Um, yeah, those would be kind of some of the main ones. Amillennialist, uh, R.C. Sproul would be amillennial with a partial preterist bent to it, but he's still amill. Uh, Sproul would be amill. Um, any, uh, I should qualify this, almost anybody in the PCA circles, the Presbyterian circles are going to be amill. Um, not just PCA, uh, probably in most Presbyterian circles, people are going to be amill. You don't have to be. Uh, the Westminster Confession isn't necessarily, and the Westminster Standards aren't necessarily amill, but it, it's a covenantal issue. Uh, and so when you buy into the system, that's where you're going to land, most likely. So uh, what was the um, James Montgomery Boyce. Some of you guys probably remember uh, Dr. Boyce's ministry, 10th, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Uh, he died, what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. Um, he was a, a famous exception because he was pre-mill um, in the Presbyterian world. So just kind of interesting. Um, amillennial, uh, yeah. So you have the Presbyterian bent. Um, you also have a lot of Baptists. Mark Dever uh, is going to be um, amill. Tom Schreiner, um, 
at Southern Seminary. Although, <laughs> so you guys will find this funny. Uh, Tom Schreiner was, he just wrote a Revelation commentary, which is super helpful and good. Um, Schreiner actually changed positions in the middle of preaching Revelation. Uh, from uh, post, he, he was pre, and then he was mill, and then I think he went back to the pre, uh, historic pre mill, and then I think he's, I think he's landed again at um, millennialism. It's kind of interesting, uh, and it shows you how difficult this topic is, um, actually. So Schreiner, um, and then post millennial, probably the number one advocate today is Doug Wilson. Uh, some of you guys are familiar with Doug Wilson out of Moscow, Idaho. Um, Doug Wilson did an interview. Uh, there was an evening of eschatology is what it was called. Some of you guys may have watched that um, a few years ago. Uh, John Piper hosted it. And so it was Sam Storms who represented the Amil position. Jim Hamilton, he was one of my professors at Southern uh, Seminary. He represented historic pre-mill. And then uh, post-mill was represented by Doug Wilson. And they asked Doug Wilson um, why he was, uh, was post-mill. <laughs> and he said, uh, he goes, well, two reasons. He said, one, Jonathan Edwards. He said, and two, it's just a lot of fun. You get to win. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I mean, if I'm just picking one, like, yeah, why not pick the one that wins? Um, so, but, you know, I don't think our theology works that way, unfortunately. Um, so it was kind of funny, though. He has other reasons. Uh, he, read, he wrote a book uh, called When the Man Comes Around. It's a commentary on Revelation. And he also wrote another book uh, called his book on missions, Let the World Rejoice, or something, something like that. Sorry. That was Piper. I, I say this a lot. I, don't, I think it's true. Do you know it was Charles Colson, a post-millennialist? I think he was. Yeah. You can kind of see it come out in some of these cultural, cultural engagement. We'll talk about that. And I, I want to. I think you'll have some good insights on that. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's on uh, YouTube, Alan? What is? Did he, uh conversation about? Oh yeah, it is. Um, look up an evening of eschatology with John Piper. They hosted it at Bethlehem Church um, in Minneapolis. This was before Piper uh, stepped down as a senior pastor there. It was helpful. Um, I was actually in, I was in class with Hamilton right after that happened. And it, it was fun. Uh, it, was, it was really helpful. So, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's worth watching. It's like two hours long. Um, so you got to kind of be in it to win it. But you'll enjoy it. All right. It's entertaining. Okay. Any other questions about just, just the big category so far? Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a conversation that starts in Genesis. I mean, it really is. It's a conversation that starts in Genesis, and it's a conversation about the interaction and the storyline of the Bible. Um, and I, as much as I, I don't want to say it this way, I think it's true. It's about that more than it's about an individual text. It really is because you got to interpret it somehow. You know, like the passage we looked at this morning, or Mark 13, or uh, what we'll look at next week. Um, you, you just you can't get everything from one text, and so you're you're looking at the big picture and the scope of Scripture, which I don't think is wrong, but people have different understandings of that. So primary, secondary, yeah, Ken. I'm wondering how the post-millennial measure their progress. Right. So somebody asked Doug Wilson in the wake of like all that's going on, um, that doesn't seem to be progressing us towards the kingdom, I'll just put it that way, um, in the last, let's say, five years. Um, somebody asked Doug Wilson, like, they said, are you, are you ready? To it was an interview. It was, it was kind of funny. Doug Wilson's funny. Uh, he's very witty. Um, he's got a, just a really sharp uh, sense of humor. 
don't recommend everybody watch him or listen to him. He, he's kind of a loose cannon uh, to me, but he, you know, as far as the post-mill thing, like he is the most popular advocate today. So somebody asked him, like, are you ready to, like, now that all the craziness has happened in our world, you ready to toss in the towel on this post-mill thing? Um, and he kind of laughed. He said, I'm more convinced now than ever. And here's what he said, which is interesting. He said, what I think the Lord is doing is he's running a reductio on America right now. Now, what, a reductio, what he's doing is he's talking about, um, it's a Latin term uh, in logic. Kate's like, I'm awake now. <laughs> she, she loves that stuff. Uh, so uh, a re- reductio ad absurdum, which means? We didn't go over that. You didn't? Oh. Um, reduction to absurdity. So if I can just, if I, if I can let this thing run its course, the transgender movement, everybody's all riled up about this whole Leah Thomas deal right now. Reduction to absurdity. Okay, okay, so we'll let them do this. Okay, we'll let them do this. Okay, we'll let them do this. At the end of it, finally people wake up and go, all right, that's enough. That's enough. And so Wilson's view of his post-millennial bent coming into this is that the Lord is just kind of letting this thing spin until finally people wake up and go, okay, that's it. I remember there were quite a few guys, like me, I think, that had an issue a few years ago. You remember when Target went through their nonsense and said, you know, anybody that identifies as whatever can go into the female bathroom. And as a dad with two daughters, I just said, you know what? No, it ain't happening. Not happening. You know, this, this is the Lord calling me to prison ministry from the inside. Like, <laughs> it ain't happening. Um, just, we're not going. Like, no, no. And so I think there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily thinking biblically, but it's so absurd that they're going, okay, <laughs> we've gone far enough with this. And I think you're seeing that happen actually now. So I don't think Wilson's completely wrong on that. So that's his spin. Um, I think it's, it's also a little bit, pardon the comparison, um, I'm not an evolutionist. Make sure I say that out front. It's a little bit like the evolutionist, um, time fixes everything, right? It's like, oh, you know, well, we're playing a long game. Like, okay. Uh, and so, you know, what's 20, 30, 40, 50, 100? What's 100 years, you know, in the scope of eternity? Like, we're ushering in a long-term kingdom. So this needs to happen so that it's like when you have an unlimited amount of time, you can, you know, you can just kind of see these slight little, you know, tweaks in cultural trajectories. And so it's kind of an out, you know, for the post-millennialist that, yeah, you know, it'll get there. And it's very patient, you know, I guess that's helpful. I don't know. All right, so let's, let's dive into these three positions then. Um, so we'll spend most of our time, oops, that's uh, not what I meant to do. Um, we'll spend most of our time talking about this premillennialism just because that's where um, we are as a church, okay? So let's not let me do what I want to do. Oh, maybe I can do it from here. Yeah, that'll work. Okay, so we're talking about, um, so we're on premillennialism, so top part of your chart here. Uh, Christ's death and resurrection, we have Pentecost, which is the beginning of the church age. Um, and then we have a divergence here, uh, dispensational view and the, and the classical view. So the dispensational view has three options, uh, the pre, the mid, and the post-trip. So what we're talking about is the rapture of the church. Rapture is a distinct event in the, in the dispensational system. Rapture is a distinct event from the second coming. 
They could be at the same time, as a post-tribber would say, but they're distinct events with different things happening. So pre-trib means before this really nasty tribulation, seven-year tribulation that's going to happen, um, and that comes from uh, Daniel chapter 9, uh, amongst other places. So just before this really nasty tribulation happens, God's going to remove the church. They take passages like 1 Thessalonians 1.10. A couple of you asked me about that when I didn't say anything about it in, uh, <laughs> when I preached to 1 Thessalonians. Um, I don't think that's a reference there. I'll get to that later too. Um, so the church is going to be taken out. Tribulation is going to start. God's going to do his work. Part of that is related to how um, the dispensational system understands the relationship of God and Israel. So God has moved along working primarily in history through Israel. There's this what's called the great parentheses um, at the time of Christ. So there was a break in working with Israel. And now the primary tool by which God is accomplishing his purpose is through the Gentiles with some Israelites being included. They've been the Israelites uh, and the Gentiles have now been grafted into this one work of God, depending on your brand of dispensationalism. And then that's going to close at one point. Um, and God is going to deal primarily then again with the Israelites, but he's going to remove the church in order to do so. There's going to be seven years of really bad tribulation, then the return of Christ. All right. That's the pre-trib position. Mid-trib says what's going to happen is that there's going to be three and a half years of tribulation and then the great tribulation. Worse. So at the midpoint of this tribulation, it's going to go from, from bad to really bad, and that's when the church is going to actually be lifted out. Um, he rescues from the wrath to come. So the first part has been natural tribulation, if you will, wars, rumors of wars. Um, I was reading Mark 13 this week. Our men's Bible study was going through Mark 13, our 9 o'clock study. And as I read the passage, one of the guys says, that sounds like Ukraine right now. Like, you know, there's wars and rumors of wars and, you know, woe be it unto you if you're pregnant in those days and like trying to flee and it's awful. You know, invading armies moving in, there's shells going off everywhere. I was hearing reports from a couple of people this morning with friends and relatives over there and, you know, the shells go off and, and these massive explosions. You go deaf for, you know, minutes, you know, 15, 20 minutes. You can't hear a thing because of the, just the chaos. And, and so that's the type of thing. And then... The wrath of God, supernatural, is going to start being poured out. And before that happens, the church is removed. Okay, so that's a mid-trib. Post-trib says we're going to go through all of that. All right? God is still, there's still, it's still a dispensational understanding. Um, there's still a distinction between Israel and the church. But we're going to go through all of that. And then you're going to have, it's a, it's a rapture return. So you're going to go up and back down. Um, and that's the rapture return kind of idea. So... If you look at this, um, what you can see is that the historic pre-mill, so the bottom rung here where the little blue box is, I don't think I can do it on here. With this. Um, so the bottom box, that's the historic pre-mill or classical pre-mill. It's also called, those are synonymous. Um, they look the same on a timeline, but they're, they're happening that way for very different reasons, all right? So they look the same, though. As you go through tribulation, Jesus returns, then there's the millennium. Okay? So everybody clear on the timeline? Any questions about that so far? Yeah? Well, clear is a relative thing. Alan. Yeah? Would you say that um, historical pre-mill, would they say like we're in the tribulation right now from Advent to Advent? 
That depends. <laughs> I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't. I would say there's a future tribulation coming. Yeah. Based on my understanding of Daniel 9. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's different views of that, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would say yes. Some would say no. Um, so, yeah. We'll, we'll come back around to that. Remind me if I don't mention it. Uh, okay. So let's talk about this whole dispensational and covenantal uh, framework. Um, when we talk about this, uh, talk about dispensation. Uh, what actually is a dispensation, and what are we talking about when we say a covenant? Um, and there's different brands and branches within this. Um, dispensation, this was Charles Ryrie. Charles, Ryrie's kind of considered like one of the grandfathers of dispensationalism. Um, he would be more of a, um, a revised dispensationalist than a classical dispensationalist. But he's, he's one of the ones. He was a professor at Dallas Seminary. The study Bible was hugely influential. Wrote a book called Dispensationalism. I think, I think that was one of the books we had to read in seminary. Um, this is what I cut my teeth on. Uh, many of you guys did as well, the dispensational thought. Um, and I would say it's the, I would say most people uh, in the Christian church today in America are default dispensationalists, unless you grew up in like a Presbyterian background. Most are default um, maybe a Methodist background or Anglican as well. You're default dispensationalist um, because you like Kirk Cameron in the movies. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what's there not to love? Um, you know, Hal Lindsey, great, late, late great planet Earth, um, the Left Behind, Tim LaHaye series. Uh, that, is, that has had huge, huge massive influence um, on the church. What's interesting is the academy is not going that direction anymore. Uh, the academy is not. Um, there's really only a handful of dispensational schools that are that are like really dispensational. Um, Master Seminary is dispensational. John MacArthur leads that. Dallas is still uh, DTS is still dispensational. Um, Denver Seminary has some dispensational people, but it's not dispensational as far as an institution. Uh, Southeastern Seminary, uh, Danny Aiken, the president there, he is dispensational, but he has people all across the spectrum on the faculty there. And that, that's really the main ones. Uh, Detroit Baptist is also dispensational. I have a friend that went there um, as well. So what do we mean when we say dispensation? Dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. So a dispensationalist is arguing that uh, the Bible is put together through a series of dispensations. And what you can do as you, you know, Gail, you were asking a question, how do you get there? You get there from some of the decisions you're going to have to make here about how you read it and understand what's going on at particular points in time. So a dispensation is a distinguishable economy. Um, and there's different, different views and understandings, and I'll, I'll show you some of those. Um, so dispensational then, ism then, is a theological system that teaches biblical history is best understood in light of a number of successive administrations of God's dealings with mankind, which it calls dispensations. So it, it's a commitment, a theological commitment to reading the Bible through these, what's called dispensations. Okay, if I haven't confused you yet... Let me try to. This is uh, Theological Systems, a taxonomy of theological systems. This is in the book that I told you about, Continuity or Discontinuity to Continuity by Ben Merkel. I found this, I found the book really helpful. He doesn't take a position, um, by the way. Um, he just lays out these six positions um, and he just describes what they are strengths and weaknesses. I found it helpful. So continuity and discontinuity, this refers to how much and how closely you see the covenants relating to one another. Old Testament to New Testament, um, how closely are they related? Um, This is where conversations like circumcision and baptism, what's the relationship between those two? 
Israel and the church. Um, what's the relationship between those two? Something like, um, who makes up the church? Uh, it's an ecclesiology conversation, doctrine of the church. Who's in the church? Is the church made up of believers and unbelievers? Or is the church just believers? Is it parallel to what we had in the Old Testament, where you had a mixed multitude? Some believed and some didn't, but they all took the sign of the covenant? Or is it a new thing? What's new about the new covenant? So these are the types of conversations that you had. And your answer to some of those things will depend on how you understand these things working together. So dispensationalism sees distinction. Covenantalism sees continuity. All right? So this is the spectrum. Discontinuity to continuity. So within that, you have classic dispensationalism. Um, some of these are, this is like Schofield, um, the Schofield Reference Bible, which some of you I know um, have had and read. Uh, classical dispensationalism, some would go so far as to say that what the Gentiles and the Jews of the first century and even now experience is not the same as far as how they relate to God. There's actually a separate adjudication and how God relates to them. Because they would say there's so much distinction between Israel and the church that they don't actually get into the new covenant in the same way. All right, so we're kind of looking over the shoulder of the Jews. The new covenant was made to the Jews. The new covenant promised, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 26, it was made to the Jews. So how did you Gentiles get in there? This is our promise. And so they would say you're actually standing over the shoulder and looking onto the Jews and their promise. So you see, you, you get what I'm going there with, their, with that huge distinction between those two. Revised dispensationalists come along and like, nah, there's not quite that much distinction. This is where like Ryrie and those guys are. Progressive guys, um, which this got popular. This was really popular when I was in seminary and still is. Uh, Daryl ba- Blazing and Block, um, they, they really were the guys that kind of trailblazed this and Robert Sosi um, as well. We read some of Sosi and then Blazing and Block um, have really made this popular. Um, one of my seminary professors, he would always warn us about progressive dispensational. So they would be more revised um, at Masters where I was. They would warn us. They said that progressive dispensationalists, they're covenantalists in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you would cue the minor chords on the organ. Um, you know, these terrible people are trying to take over. Uh, dispensa- they're covenantalists in disguise. Um, but, but I'm not sure they're totally wrong um, at the same time. Um, it is moving more, much more that, that direction. I'll show you how that works in just a second. So those are the dispensationalists. Let's, let's move on. I don't think I'm going to share that. That's a little too much. Um, so Michael Vlock wrote a little book, uh, Dispensationalism, um, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths. Uh, he's a professor at uh, Masters and very helpful. Uh, very helpful. So dispensational, um, he would put himself more in the revised category, although I think there's probably some <clears throat> dispensational leanings um, or uh, progressive leanings in there. So there's that book. Um, let's talk about these dispensations. We've talked about them. There's, uh, there's not unified agreement on what a dispensation is or how you mark them off. So it is what it is. Um, the seven dispensation system, which was kind of a classical dispensationalist, uh, says there's the time of innocence, that's in the Garden of Eden before sin. The conscience, um, Adam and Eve, uh, Eve's family. Human government, this is under Noah, Genesis 9. The promise, when the covenants, uh, more former in Abraham's, Abraham covenant specifically. Uh, the law given through Moses, the church, 
These are Christians in the kingdom. So this is the seven dispensational system. The progressive guys have come along like, no, y'all are making that too complicated. Uh, there's four dispensations. And this is how they would, uh, they would match it up. Um, there's the age of the Gentiles. So we're talking much big, broader sweeps here. The Garden of Eden, the Flood, the Tower of Babel. And then there's the age of Israel. So when the promise is made to Abraham and his descendants, which is an interesting phrase, um, what you have is the formation of a nation that traces back to a person. And so now God is working primarily through that nation. And then uh, that gives way to this church age. But you'll notice in the drawing here that we're not done with Israel in the dispensational system. So this parentheses or this little block of time we're dealing with the church. So the Gentiles is how God is working. That's Acts 2, Pentecost, formation of the church, through Revelation 4. Revelation 4 is important because um, in the dispensational system, they say there's no mention of the church after Revelation 4. So it's the letter, the letter, the apocalypse of Jesus to the seven churches. Churches are mentioned right there at the beginning. There's no mention of the church after that. And so they would say, God is now dealing again with Israel. And they would overlay what's going on in Revelation 4 to Matthew 24 and say, these are the, these are the future things that are happening um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the time yet to come. All right, so God is dealing again with Israel in this tribulation period. Um, and that will give way to the millennial age. Okay. So those are the dispensational positions, classical, revised, progressive. Obviously a lot we could say about each of those, but um, that's, that's the big picture. Uh, what about these covenants and covenantalism? Um, you have covenant uh, theology, progressive covenantalism, and then Christian reconstruction. Uh, so here again, there's a spectrum. So I would make the case that the progressive uh, these guys, the progressive guys, uh, progressive may be a bad word in some of your circles. Um, it doesn't mean that. It just means progress over time. So progressive dispensation, meaning one dispensation leads, progresses to the next. Covenantal, uh, progressive covenantalism means one covenant leads into the next. That's the, just how they're putting it together. Okay, so I would argue that these guys actually aren't that far apart, but they are apart, <laughs> all right? So you're either going to be covenantal or dispensational at the end of the day. You are. Um, now, you may not know which one you are. You may go back and forth when you read your Bible um, and you're thinking through it just for yourself, but you are one, um, one or the other. Um, if we talk long enough, we can probably figure that out. Uh, and, it, and it just has to do with how you understand covenants and how you put the Bible together. So you're, you're one of those things. Um, okay, so let's talk about that. Um, so what I want to do, I want to give special attention to the progressive uh, covenantal view um, because that's, that's really where I find myself these days. And I want to I talk about covenant theology uh, first, okay? So covenantalism, uh, the covenantal superstructure. So in the covenantal system, there's three covenants that have been established, all right? These are kind of big picture covenants, and then there's covenants within the covenant. Everybody good? Y'all need coffee? Are we okay? <laughs> if I start saying things that just don't make any sense, somebody just raise your hand and tell me, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> All right. Um, the covenantal system, 
And this is where I checked out of covenantalism. Um, when, I, when I started digging into this and looking at this covenantal system, I'm like, ah, I just, I just can't see all that. Um, I can't see all that, and I, and I still don't. So covenant of redemption, um, this refers to an intertrinitarian covenant that was made to redeem. Okay? So we have nothing to do with this. This is God within the Trinity commissions the Son, the Spirit, the Father. Uh, that's, that's what happens. Uh, then we have the covenant of works. The covenant of works is what happened in the garden. So God puts Adam and Eve there. He gives them a rule. It's a conditional covenant then. Gives them a rule. Don't eat of that tree. What do they do? They broke the rule. So this is tied to a probationary period. Some of you ladies that did the ladies Bible study and came across Nancy Guthrie's teaching on the probationary period. Some of y'all were like, what in the world's going on there? I ended up at a ladies Bible study right over here talking about this thing uh, because we had questions about that, which is fine. Uh, let me footnote that. Covenantalists aren't the only people that say there was such a thing as a probationary period, but it's very tied to this idea that covenant works. All right, so just another day we can explore that. Uh, okay, so this, this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there was a probationary period, and the theory is if Adam and Eve had obeyed for a period of time, we have no idea, that the temptation eventually would have been removed and we usher in the, the eternal state. Um, it's an interesting thought uh, because... What if, I think a lot of us think, well, what if they hadn't sinned? Was the tree always going to be there? Right? That's one of the questions. And so part of the answer to that is it's a covenant of works. If they complete the task, set amount of time, whatever, they obey the Lord, well, then the temptation's gone, and it's basically the eternal state um, at that point. We skip Genesis 3 to Revelation 19. We just kind of move straight into the good stuff. Okay? Uh, Revelation 21, I guess, really. Okay, uh, so that's the covenant of works. Um, covenant of grace, then, is everything that comes after that. So God would have been right to wipe out the world um, at that point. He could have, uh, but he didn't. And so every promise that's made after that is underneath the banner of the covenant of grace. So uh, moving on, then, the covenant of works, salvation was, um, was by their obedience, um, to this covenant, but they didn't obey. And so now we move over to the second column after the fall. You have the covenant of grace, the Old Testament administration of that. You have Passover, circumcisions, uh, circumcision, visions, theophanies, um, the, the way that God administrates, he, the way he communicates and the way that you respond to God. Um, it's through, it, but it's all the covenant of grace. And then in the New Testament, there's a new administration um, through the church, the Lord's Supper, infant baptism, um, which I'll, explain how they get there in just a second. Uh, and then the Son of God, Christ himself in the Holy Scripture. So there, you'll hear the covenantalists talk a lot about the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. If you grew up in a um, maybe a PCA or UPC background, maybe, uh, maybe Anglican as well, um, you'll hear them talk about the ordinary means of grace. Uh, a lot of Baptists, actually, your 1689 kind of guys uh, talk about that um, as well. I'm not bothered by that, but it's tied to this understanding of the covenant of grace an administration of grace through the church. All right? Does that make sense? All right? Those of you that come from a covenantal background, if I butcher this, you can, you can let me know. Okay? Yeah. Everybody good? All right. So I think that's an accurate um, overview. So I want to talk just for a second, uh, because why does, this, why does this stuff matter? Well, it, it matters very practically in, in an issue like baptism, um, the level of continuity versus discontinuity that you see. So here's how it works. Um, 
in the covenantal system, in the Old Testament, you circumcised all the male children. Were they believing? No, they were infants, you know, eight days old. So they, they couldn't um, at that point. Now, you didn't know whether they were going to come to belief or not. And this is where they would take a passage like Hebrews 6. It says they've tasted of the kindness of the Lord. They were part of the covenant community, and they've rejected that. They've trampled underfoot the grace of God. They would take that passage and say that ties into the rejection of their baptism. Um, they were baptized into this covenant family, and they rejected it. Baptists, on the other hand, and what the progressive covenantalists would argue is no. So what's new, this sign of the covenant, this baptism specifically, it doesn't relate back to circumcision. It relates back to another thing in the Old Testament called the circumcision of heart, which I would liken to the new birth in the Old Testament. And so that's what it would, it would relate back to. Here's how I see it. The Old Testament covenant community was a, a community of believers and unbelievers within the system. Okay? New Testament community, I believe that all the people in the church, in the system, the church proper, um, actually believe. And so they're the ones that take the sign of the covenant. So circumcised of heart, true Israel in the Old Testament, like Paul talks about, um, not all Israel is Israel. Uh, Romans 9, verse 6, tricky little verse there. Not all Israel is Israel. And so now believers are taking the sign of the covenant um, in the new covenant. This is a Baptist understanding. Um, when I say Baptist, you guys know we're, we are Baptistic here. We're not Baptist in the sense of like Neptune Baptists or First Baptist or wherever. Um, but we are Baptistic as far as our understanding and beliefs. Um, so that is that. Is that. Um, a couple other things that I'll cover, and then I'll give everybody a break. Or maybe I'll just wear you out and you won't ask questions. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. All right. Um, the differences between these, like I said, I think the progressive dispensational and progressive covenantal and the covenant theologians, there, there's a lot of similarities there. I do think the progressive, the two progressives are the most similar um, as far as what's on this list. Um, I mentioned a second ago the difference between a progressive dispensational and a revised versus classical. You'll hear us say the phrase a lot, already, not yet, when we talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here and uh, not yet here. The revised dispensationalists would say, it ain't here. No, 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 no. It's not here. Um, it's just not yet. <laughs> All right? So if you hear somebody say that, they're kind of tipping their hand to you that they're actually in the progressive camp. They're seeing more continuity. Um, when they say things like that. And it, it kind of helps us actually triangulate and figure out, okay, what actually am I? Um, because a phrase like that can help do that. Okay, so just wanted to show you that. I just thought it was interesting. Um, I want to talk about this uh, idea of, of PC, progressive covenantalism, and then I'll give you a break here in a second. Are you, you guys want to go ahead and take a break? Five, ten minutes? Is everybody good? Let's just, if you need to get up, you can get up. Let's just power through. We're having fun. All right. I'm having fun. I'm not about everybody else. <laughs> Tell me later. <laughs> okay. Um, so the progressive covenantalism. Uh, this is kind of a new, new uh, taxonomy that's on the scene. Um, and, and this is where I told you I've really, I've really kind of found a home. So if you remember my quotations from my initial questionnaire 
uh, coming here to Sunrise, I said, I'm really not comfortable identifying myself as a covenant theologian nor a dispensationalist. Um, I'm not comfortable with the dispensational idea because I can't, I can't see such a sharp distinction between Israel and the church anymore. Um, I, just, I just can't. I'm not comfortable calling myself a covenant theologian because I just can't get behind this covenant of works, covenant of grace um, schema. And to say I'm a covenant theologian would be to own that system. So that's why I just, I just kind of felt homeless for a while. Um, and then kind of found, I think I found what I was looking for um, with this PC, progressive covenantal idea. Um, they say that dispensationalists and covenantalists are actually making the same mistake on opposite sides of the issue. Here's what I mean. Uh, dispensationalism, they say, and this was the book that kind of launched this movement. Uh, this is the second edition. Um, I have the first edition too. I know if you got a board this week and want to pick up a little something to read at night, you know. Actually, you're going you're gonna to want to read this in the middle of the day with a lot of coffee. All right. Um, it's, it's surprisingly readable, actually. Except for Peter Gentry's chapter on, on Daniel 9. Don't try it. It's, uh, it's really hard. Uh, he actually re- totally rewrote that chapter um, in the new edition, uh, which is this edition. Uh, so this was the book that kind of helped launch this whole, this whole thing. Um, and I say launched it. Um, it's not like it's new. I think it was just more formalized and systematized into what people actually understand. So Kingdom Through Covenant is the name of that. Um, in this book, in the intro, they argue that... The dispensationalists, they're leaning too hard on this geographic principle. So we talked a little bit about this typology, and particularly the typology about the land. They just won't let the land issue go with Israel. And what they need to see is that the land was a type, and the land is is fulfilled typologically, ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth. So they're not saying... Uh, some of our covenantal brothers and sisters would just say, well, everything's fulfilled in Christ. Like, well, that's just an unsatisfactory answer to a lot of people, especially as it relates to something like the land. I can't get there. Like, well, the land promise is fulfilled in Christ. Well, I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I, I'm missing it. But to say, no, the land promise is fulfilled through Christ as he mediates and as he ushers in a new heavens and new earth, I go, oh, Okay. Well, I can get behind that. And so that's, they say the dispensationalist is leaning too hard on the geographic principle, whereas the covenantalist is leaning too hard on the genealogical principle, this whole family um, thing. And so they need to realize what's new about the new covenant. What's new about the new covenant is everybody has a regenerate heart, Ezekiel 26. So everybody that's in is in um, the church that's the new covenant. So a couple of facts about this. Just as far as what they're saying, what they're doing. So PC, Progressive Covenantalist, rejects the covenant of grace and works superstructure and sees the covenants as the backbone and storyline of the Bible. So that's why they call themselves progressive covenantal. Progressive meaning there's progress. Covenantal meaning that they see the covenants as the backbone of the, the, the scripture storyline. It's not a reworking of covenant theology. It's not. Um, the covenantalism title is a little bit confusing because it may seem that way. It's not that. Um, it's actually a, it's a it, they're saying something different. So as far as the hermeneutic employed there, uh, PC emphasizes the textual uh, context, which we could call the close context, the epochal context, the continuing context, and the canonical um, context as well. Um, the complete context. Got an extra continuing in there. I should have put it out. 
Um, there's a couple books here, if you're really interested in this stuff. Um, this one, this one is very readable, almost devotional, seriously. Uh, this is called Christ from Beginning to End. It's by uh, Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellum. Wellum's one of the guys, that's Stephen Wellum. Um, Wellum's one of the guys that, that has helped uh, kind of formulate this. Um, very, very readable, understandable. They just go through the covenants and show significance of that. Um, so you can look at that one. Uh, there's two books, and both of these are fairly recent. Uh, this one, uh, PC, Progressive Covenantalism. This came out last year. Uh, this is Dr. Well again and Brent Parker. Um, this one, so you guys, if you went to the last Tough Questions, Real Answers, um, you guys may remember uh, Richard Lucas, who was one of the guys on the stage with me. Um, he actually wrote a chapter in here um, on Daniel 9 and the dispensational appeal, of the, uh, I'm sorry, Romans, Romans 11 um, and the dispensational appeal uh, to Romans 11. So it was helpful. It was chapter 9. I was getting my chapters confused. Um, so that's a helpful uh, book. It's a little more theological. And then this book, uh, I was actually, it's kind of fortunate um, that this thing got moved uh, back when we were supposed to do it. Because this book just came out. Uh, it's 2022. Uh, it just came out. Uh, it's called Covenantal and Dispensational Theologies, Four Views on the Continuity of Scripture. So it's going through four views, which are uh, the covenant theology, progressive covenantal, progressive dispensational, and classical dispensational. So those are the big four um, that they cover. And actually, I had a chance to read that um, because we got this bump back a little bit. So found that extremely helpful um, as well. So that is, uh, that's, where, that's where I am and where we've landed. Um, We'll make this the last thing, and then I'll, we'll give you a break. I know I've been talking about it for the last 20 minutes, but that's just what we do sometimes. Um, so how did I end up? Yeah. Can you go back one slide? I almost got this down. I can send you these slides. I'm glad to do that okay. um, as well, yeah. if you'd rather have, have that. I have a video I was going to show you about Dr. Will. I think I'll skip that. Um, and then I also, I made 30 copies. I don't know if anybody wants it. I'll let you come look at it and decide if you want it <laughs> um, when we take a break here. Uh, this, this is Key Points of Definition with the PC um, movement. So it's a, it's a theological document. It's not, it's not hard to read, um, but it's, it's five pages. So if you want single space. So if you want that, um, you can look at it. Okay. Um, let me tell you how I got to where I got to. Uh, I've talked a little bit about my story, but I want to I want to tell you a little bit more um, about where I am. So, what what shook me from my roots and the dispensational background that I was raised in and I was educated in um, at Masters? So, I've titled this "Wandering from the Dispensational Promised Land in Search of a New Creation." Um, it's kind of an intentional title. Uh, so, uh, here's what here's what happened to me. Uh, years ago, I read uh, this book here. Uh, it's called Three Views on the Rapture. Um, now, as we know, and y'all are all educated now, we, you know that in the dispensational system, there can be three different positions, mid-trib, post-rapture, um, right? All dispensational. So I read the chapter here on the post-trib rapture, which was by Douglas Moo. And as I read that chapter, I thought, there's actually a lot of good points in there. Uh, post-trib rapture, meaning the church goes through the tribulation. Define tribulation but the church goes through the tribulation. I thought these are some good arguments. Um, and it started to shake me off of the pre-trib thing. Um, and so I started looking into that um, a little bit. One of the arguments that he makes in there is that there's actually a history of God judging a people and protecting a people at the same time. So one of the dispensational pre-trib arguments is that God's gonna pour this wrath out 
And so therefore he has to remove the church in order to be able to do that. That's kind of how the view gets presented at least. And uh, Moo argues in there, it's like, well, does he though? I mean, can't God protect his people even in the midst of pouring out his wrath? Even in the midst of tribulation, can't he protect? Isn't that more consistent with what he's done throughout history? Is his people go through huge amounts of tribulation and suffering? And so his, his question, and it became my question too, is why would we think we don't have to go through this difficulty? And, and you know, the, the answer has to be biblical, exegetical, right? Not just, I feel this way or that way. But I do think there's some people that hold to a preacher of rapture just because it sounds the best. Oh, it's going to get bad? Well, let's get out of here. I vote for that. If I'm not post-mill, I want to be pre-trip. Um, and so I'm, I'm like already two steps down from where I want to be <laughs> as far as my understanding of what's, what's happening, what's coming next. Um, so that started to shake me off the pre-trip thing a little bit. Um, you can read that, see if it's convincing to you. If it's not, it's not. Then I started looking into more about Daniel's 70 weeks. Um, so the 70 weeks argument goes something like this. Um, in Daniel chapter 9, we have seven weeks plus 62, and then the seventh week. The seventh week is the mysterious week. What happens in the seventh week? There's three different positions that you could basically take um, with the 70th week. One, the first position that you could take is that uh, the 70th week, there's a delay. All right? So you have the 62 plus the uh, 62 plus the 7. So the 7 preparation, 62, this is the return from exile. And there's a debate about when you start counting down. Um, and you count those years out. And then there's a long break. And then you have the 70th week that starts. And that's what kicks off the tribulation. Now, I'm saying week. It's weeks of years. So 70 years um, is what we're talking about. So 70, 70, 70, 70. Um, weeks of years. So you, you have... Uh, you have this long break. That's a dispensational understanding. The, most of the historicists would understand the second position, which would be this 70th week is a period of tribulation, like your, your sheet. Um, the church is in tribulation right now. Part of that is Daniel's 70th week. And we're just going to go through uh, this tribulation. So the 70th week is not meant to be understood as the seven, the seven years like the rest of the weeks were. So there's a, and that one, that one bothers me some because there's a, there's a hermeneutical issue there. You just pulled a, you just pulled a total shift. So you're counting down seven plus 62. And now you decided, well, but this one's 2000 years and counting at least. And I'm like, that didn't make any sense. Um, I'm closer to saying that there's a gap and then another seven versus this thing's just extended out for a long period of time. Then I came across Peter Gentry's argument in this book, um, and this was part of why I was uh, doing my D-Men um, at Southern, Doctor of Ministry at Southern. Uh, Gentry came in, and he helped us understand a different perspective on Daniel 9. And he says they're actually all sequential. So you have the seven, preparation, the 62 weeks, and then you have the last week. And so all of these events actually culminate at the time of Christ. And it just made sense to me. I said, oh, well, I don't have to do any hermeneutics, gymnastics. And so now all of these things flow. And so now it was starting, and, it, and this, is, this is much more organized in my mind now than when it was. I was just a mess of confusion um, at the moment, just trying to think through all this. 
it, it started to chip away at this idea of this sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Um, and I started to see these coming together. Another thing that got me, and this was the poster of argument as well, about the secret coming and the second coming. So the secret coming, that's what people often use to refer to the, um, the rapture, um, when Jesus comes back and raptures out the church. Secret because Jesus isn't physically coming down. And that's one of the distinctives, they say, between the rapture. His feet don't touch the ground. He's just in the clouds, calls up his people like a big vacuum, just you know, sucks them up. Um, we're all gone. You know, your clothes are left laying on the floor. Planes crash into buildings, all that. Um, you're just gone. Uh, you're gone. Um, and so it's the secret coming because everybody's looking around going, what happened, everybody? Um, and seven years, and then there's the return, all right? So there's a gap between. And so as I started looking at the supposed rapture passages, there's really only three, uh, four if you count John 14. There's really only three. Um, that, and you, and you, kind of, you kind of have to work to get there from other places. First um, Thessalonians 4 2 uh, Thessalonians 1 and 2, which I think refer to the second coming, and then 1 uh, Corinthians 15. There's similarity between the descriptions, the clouds, the meeting, the Lord in the air, especially between 1 Thess 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But I really started thinking through, do we really see two different events, two different things that happen um, in the Bible? Um, even the passage like this morning, uh, Matthew 24, what are we supposed to be ready for? Well, and this is... This is one of the things, and I don't mean this in a sarcastic way, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm not making fun of anyone, but it's, it is interesting to me how the pre-trib, pre-mill dispensationalists are most amped up about the Antichrist and the things that come. And I'm always like, you're leaving. Why do you care? Yeah. <laughs> you're get out of here anyways. <laughs> like, it does, does it matter? Um, you know, if you're, if you're headed out, I mean, they already punched your ticket. Like, you're long gone before all that happens. So why are you worried about it? Uh, it is kind of interesting to me, though. Um, that, that, that does seem to, like, go together um, somehow. So I, I started to, to see these less as two separate events and more as uh, two different aspects, kind of the front and the back of one event. Um, and that's, so I started kind of shifting into this post-trib kind of position. From there, I started to see more continuity. Um, I remember as I was working on my doctorate, one of the, one of the uh, assignments that we had to do is we had to write an outline of the entire Bible, like original, like we had to come up with something like an outline that kind of encompassed the whole story of the Bible. I just remember working through that, and I was working on my big whiteboard I had in my office at the time, and just kind of scribbling out some notes and thoughts, and I got to the church, and I just started to see it. It's like, where has this been my whole life? And just to see the church is the fulfillment and culmination of all of this Old Testament, and that it all comes together through Christ in the church. I started looking at passages like um, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 through 13. Um, there's one man in Christ. And so it started to shake me. And to say, I can't see a millennium that operates with Israel in one economy and the Gentiles in another. And that's what the dispensational system is saying. Um, I, I, just can't, I just can't quite understand this. We're one man in Christ. I can't see this distinction being brought together and then separated out again. The point, the redemptive arc was to bring it all together. And so it really started to compel me and move me to move away from a more dispensational understanding. I know there's arguments against that. I know some of you could make some pretty good arguments, and I'm, I'm up for that. 
Um, but that's just telling you my story. That's what happened. The ministry of Jesus, this is a simple point, but it was compelling to me as well. Jesus calls 12. <laughs> huh. We've heard 12 before. I wonder where. The Old Testament, the 12 tribes, there's a new thing that he's doing. There's a new people that he's forming up. I thought, man, this is really starting to... Uh, he says things like uh, Matthew 5, the meek inherit the earth. I'm like, well, why would they want just Palestine when you can have the whole deal, the whole enchilada? Like, the meek inherit the earth, the whole thing. Um, I'll talk about the land more if anybody comes back after we take a break. Um, <laughs> The problem, and then, so the ministry of Jesus, that becomes compelling to me. Um, there's some other things that are going on there. Uh, Jesus crosses over the Jordan. He crosses over, he forms up the 12. Um, it's just got a lot of similarities. Uh, he goes off into the wilderness, um, 40 days. How long did, was Israel in the desert? 40 years. The three temptations that he faces are parallel. I think Jesus was a true Israelite. It's reduced down to the true Israelite, Jesus. And all of these lines started to converge in my mind. And, and uh, like I said, I mean, I've been thinking about this for on, off and on. I don't want to pretend like I've been on this, you know, 10-year research project. I haven't. Um, but off and on over the years, like probably a book a year or more um, at least, you know, I've been trying to work through this. And, and this is kind of where I've landed. Um, I'll call it the problem of the epistles, uh, the problem with the dispensational understanding in my mind um, with the epistles, uh, particularly Peter and Paul and some of the things they say. So in Peter, um, he references some of the language that he uses. It's just flat out Jewish. It's just flat out Jewish to the, to the point that I think there was probably some people that were offended um, back in the day. Um, he actually uses priestly language to talk about them. Now, remember, there's a perspective that the New Covenant was only written to, um, written to the, the Jews, um, and so he says in 1 Peter 2, 4, And you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. It's temple language. To be a holy priesthood. Hmm. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion. And he, he quotes from the Old Testament a couple of different places. So he uses, he uses very Old Testament priest-like language. Now, here's what you have to decide as a reader of the scripture. Who does that apply to? Who is this holy nation? Who's the royal priesthood? And I think all of us would say Christians, right? Interesting story. I preached one Sunday, and I was preaching about the church and characteristics of the church. I referenced this passage in one of my points. There was a visitor here that day, and he was very dispensational, and uh, we connected afterwards, and he basically told me, you have no right as a Gentile to use that passage to talk about the church. That's not who that's to. It's to the, the people of God, the Israelites. And so they, they, they hold a very firm distinction, um, some, some dispensation. Not all. Uh, like I said, it's like, tell me what an American's like. I'm like, well... You know, which one? <laughs> uh, there's huge variety. So I get it. Um, but, you know, and he sent me this article, um, and I interacted with him a few times on that. Very cordial, very nice. We had a great conversation. I enjoyed it. So n nothing wrong. But he basically said in the end, uh, he visited, I think, two Sundays, and he said, well, i got to find a more dispensational place. Um, you're not dispensationalist enough for me. I said, okay, well, I'm probably not going to be. Um, so 
That, that's all right. Um, so, you, you know, and, and I hope, and I actually recommend it a couple places. I'm like, you know, you can maybe try here or here, and maybe that'll work out for you. I hope it does. Uh, but, but that's a distinction to a point that, like, you can't, you can't apply this to the church. Like, that's a hard line distinction. And so I started to see more and more continuity with that. The big passage, this other, this other uh, book that I told you about from uh, Discontinuity to Continuity, comes from Galatians. Uh, just one little phrase um, that Paul uses that's troubled a lot of commentators over the years. So Galatians 3, um, Galatians three sixteen. Um, uh, yeah, okay, so 316, two, two places actually. Uh, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So it seems like what Paul is doing there is he's, he's distilling down the promise to one, the remnant of one. That's Christ, all right? Now look at what he does over in chapter six in verse 16. Just one phrase, but you won't believe the ink that's been spilt over this. And as for all who walk by the rule, by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Wait a minute. <laughs> Did he just refer to the church as the Israel of God? Because that's troublesome. Uh, and so some dispensational commentators would say, no, he's actually talking only to the Jewish believers in the church at that point. And so you get the difference. There's this, this line of distinction. And I just began to see some of these things, and the continuity began to make much more sense to me. Um, and then lastly, the last piece of the puzzle, and I think when I got this is when I said, okay, I really, I'm really okay not being dispensational anymore. Uh, Romans 11. This is a, a major passage. You just got to deal with this one um, if you're going to figure some of this stuff out. Romans 11, salvation versus restoration for Israel. So Romans 11, 25 uh, through 27. I'll, I'll just read it and then make a few comments. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, Paul uses mystery in a technical sense. It's something that was hidden and now revealed. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So Israel is now largely in unbelief so that the Gentiles can come in. All right? And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Say, okay, well, that's the ultimate dispensational text, right? All Israel is going to be saved. Well, it doesn't say restored. It says saved. So when I figured out, oh, I can still hold a future for ethnic, national Israel, but it's a saving future. It's not a restorative future. I don't think Israel's going to be restored in the sense of the old, old covenant promises. I think uh, Peter's quotation of this passage over in Acts chapter 11, uh, or I'm sorry, James's quotation of this in Acts 15, I, I, think, I don't think there's a, there's a restoration. I do think there's going to be mass salvation, and we praise the Lord for that. But it's going to be a salvation and a coming in, a being a coming back in. This hardening is going to be lifted, and they're going to come back in to the church, one man in Christ. And so I just can't see the two um, operational anymore. Um, I see one man in Christ. It's all been reduced down um, to that. Okay. Have I made everybody mad yet? Good. 
All right, why don't we take, um, I got a few more things that I want to talk through, and then I'm glad to take any questions. If you guys, uh, if you're ready to go take a nap, I totally get it. Um, I do want to talk about the land. I want to talk about the millennial kingdom, and then I want to talk about uh, James's use of Amos in Acts 15, so that's what's coming up. So why don't we take uh, five, ten minutes, let's be back in just a couple minutes, all right? Included later, all right? That's the, the traditional dispensational argument. Progressive dispensational, hold to a little bit more already not yet, you'll remember. Progressive dispensational, this quote introduces an already not yet fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment, but the promise of Amos 9, 11, and 12 is still to be fulfilled completely in national ethnic Israel. So what James is doing is he's saying this is partly fulfilled, remember the typological character of eschatology, partly fulfilled now, but there's going to be a greater fulfillment later. So the restoration is still to come, but there is some restoration now, like restoration with a little r. Big R is coming later, all right? A little bit more coming. The covenantal understanding, on the other hand, in this, uh, this quote, um, I thought it was kind of funny, so I left it in. Uh, the restoration of natural Israel in Amos 9 is interpreted by God. That's baiting the answer, huh? Is interpreted by God, Acts 15, to refer to the gathering of God's elect, both Jews and Gentiles. So I, I think it's a little bit cheeky the way he said that. Um, it's interpreted by God. That's up for discussion. All right. That's what we're trying to figure out. So I wish he hadn't said it that way. But, um, but his point is, uh, James' point using Amos 9 is to demonstrate fulfillment, thus negating the anticipation of any further fulfillment. So James is closing the case. Um, this has been done. So Israel is now restored. Um, that's what James is doing. Those are the three perspectives. I'm not going to make that decision for you, but those are the three. Yep. Flip your screen back. That one? Look, look at your screen. You don't have your three. Yeah. Your, your three you definitions. Back, back slide. Back slide. Or uh, three positions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. That's what you, oh, was yes. that not up? I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Um, so the covenantal understanding Restoration of national Israel is interpreted by God in Acts 15 to refer to the gathering of God's elect. Uh, James' point is that this has been fulfilled. All right? So you see, you see the implications of that. Um, one says, no, this hasn't been fulfilled. It's in the future, but you should, be, you should let them in now because they will be accepted later into this restored kingdom. Second position says this is a partial fulfillment. It's a spiritual fulfillment, but there's a national fulfillment yet to come. That's a big issue in Romans uh, 9 and 11 as well. Um, spiritual versus national. There's spiritual element now, national later. Um, and then the third position is, no, this is, this is done. Um, and the point of James quoting this is it's done. All right? I lean towards that position. Um, I wouldn't have said that 12 years ago, but I do know. Um, why isn't that changing? There we go. Um, so as far as, that's weird. Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't know. It, well, whenever I go back to the other one, it won't click off of it for some reason. Um, the covenantal, the PC would say the same thing as the covenantal on this, on this particular slide. So the progressive covenantal and covenantal would say the same exact thing. Uh, that's why I didn't break it down into a different count. So, yeah. All right. So that's that's what's going on. All right. So a few whatabouts. 
Um, and let's just let's just play a little game here. Um, some questions that you may have that I have. Um, I don't have all the answers on some of this. Like I said, it's it's not this isn't stump you know Allen time. It's really not that hard to do. Uh, what about all those promises to Israel? I hear that a lot. Um, well, there's all these promises to Israel, and I, I just stop and go, what promises are you talking about? Like, what, which promises? There's really only three promises, all right? There's three promises. Uh, there's promise of land, promise of descendants, and promise of blessing from the Abrahamic covenant. Really, any other promise that's found within the Old Testament has either been fulfilled uh, in the time of the Old Testament or at the coming of Christ, obviously, or um, it's, it's not been um, you know, or it refers to something that's going to happen um, in the future. So what, what are those promises? Um, land descendants blessing. I think the land is the biggest issue. Uh, that, is the, that is the biggest issue, and it's the number one issue, I think, that keeps many um, in the dispensational world, um, particularly the progressive dispensational guys. So what about the land promises? I actually have a solution that I think everybody's going to be fine with. It's actually fulfilled in the metaverse. So that's... <laughs> That fixes it. Um, we can go home, right? That's what, that's what did it. Um, if you're not familiar with the metaverse, you're probably better off. Um, so a question I have. Uh, I'm just curious. Think about it. Uh, what is the first promise of land in the Bible? Where? Yeah, that's right. It, how, many, how many of you, you don't, you don't have to raise your hand. You can if you want to. How many of you first thought of Abraham, the promise of land? That if, if you did, you're probably more dispensational. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting the way that that works. Uh, okay, uh, first promise of land in the Bible, it was Adam. Um, it was Adam. And if you, if you immediately thought of that, chances are you're probably more covenantal. If you said Abraham, you're probably more dispensational. Um, point is, there's a story that starts prior to Abraham and the founding of the nation. The reason that's significant is with Abram, Abraham comes a nation, um, and the nation is fulfilling these promises. So I think what's going on is we need to understand these land promises in light of and in context of an Edenic promise. So the Eden promise of land, of the place, the fill the earth, multiply subdue the earth, it's yours, have dominion over it. You need to understand all this in context of that. So what happens, I think, is you start really big, the earth, well, the Garden of Eden, subdue the earth, multiplying purposes, expanding purposes. G.K. Bill has a great book on that. And it reduces down after the fall to a nation and a person and a particular locale. And then it expands back out in the new heavens and the new earth. All right, so I think it's this accordion kind of thing. Big promise, reduces down, gets big again. That's why I'm not really happy with just saying the land promises are fulfilled in Christ. That didn't do it for me. I think, though, there is a promise that's fulfilled. By the way, if this one, if this really scratches you where you're itching as far as wanting to study this a little bit more, this is a great book, um, Bound for the Promised Land by Oren Martin. Um, and he goes through all of these, um, he goes through the whole Everything that you've ever thought about the land, um, he, he mentions it here. So that's a, that's a good little resource there. Um, I think it's extremely helpful. Uh, so the land, the land in Eden. Um, the bookends are helpful. And what I mean by the bookends is, I mean, the Eden-like place uh, at the beginning and then the, 
at the end, we also see um, the, uh, the, the land that people are living in. So the specific land promises are a narrowing of a larger promise, as I just said. Uh, the land promised to Abraham begins the process of recapturing and advancing what was lost in Eden and will not be fulfilled until a new Eden is regained. At every point in Israel's history, the promised land served as a place that anticipated in Edenic terms an even greater land to come. So um, Orrin Martin's making the argument, and Wellam and others have made this argument too, that the, it's, it's really a recapturing of Eden. That's the whole point of the land. Um, and so... A lot of times that gets left off the conversation. We just talk about the borders, you know, in Joshua and Deuteronomy and um, Numbers. And we don't talk about the larger purpose of the land. What was the land? What's well, a recapturing of the Eden-like place? Uh, Martin demonstrates in Balfour the Promised Land that the Promised Land were conceived in the Old Testament as expanding beyond the geographical borders, particularly compelling in the prophets, like Isaiah 11, 65, Ezekiel uh, 28, and so forth. So um, he makes the case... That the Old Testament, on the Old Testament's own terms, gives hints and clues that the land is supposed to expand. All right? It wasn't just the borders. By the way, um, I'll jump here. There's different accounts, actually, of the borders. Um, and Israel never fully possessed all of the borders. But there's different accounts. That it's, not, uh, it's not like uh, you know, going down to the probate and finding a land plat and just figuring out, like, Okay, where's the borders? It's like, well, there's actually a couple of different understandings of, like, where those are. Um, so it's not, it's not that way. Our modern minds want that, but we don't have it. Um, a few things here that he talks about. Uh, Genesis 22 and Genesis 26. Um, he talks about you're going to possess the gate of your enemy, meaning you're, you're going to conquer territory. Uh, so... This is moving beyond now Palestine, which was the land he was in, and then he would leave, and then he would come back, or his descendants would come back. Um, you'll possess these lands, plural, so it's, it's giving hints of that. And then what's really striking is Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. It says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through faith and righteousness God. So um, Abraham was going to be heir of the world. He doesn't just restrict that then to a specific place in Palestine. Um, and so I think Paul is reading the Old Testament. I think he's reading Genesis. He's reading Exodus. He's reading the prophets. And I think he's seeing an expanding purpose in what's going on with the land. And I think he applies that. I don't think he's spiritualizing it. I think he's reading the Old Testament on its own terms. Um, I don't have time to develop all of that, but if you're curious about that, um, this Bound for the Promised Land book is helpful um, with that. All right, so the borders aren't exactly the same. Uh, Deuteronomy 11 and Numbers 34 um, describe places that are a little bit different. Um, according to Genesis 15:18 and Joshua 1:4, the land God gave to Israel included everything from the Nile River in Egypt to Lebanon south to north and everything from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River west to east. On today's map, the land God has stated belongs to Israel, includes everything modern-day Israel possesses, plus all the territory occupied by the Palestinians, West Bank, Gaza, plus some of Egypt and Syria, plus all of the Jordan, plus some of uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq. So it's a much bigger territory that's actually described. Um, and so if you look at it here, let's see if we can do this. Um, we're talking about 
Egypt. We're talking about from the Red Sea. So somewhere in this area would be something like that. Um, I don't have it exact, but something in that ballpark um, would be the actual land uh, promised. Okay? Uh, Israel never really had the land, though you get a couple of interesting statements in Joshua. Um, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the, God, uh, the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave for inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments, and the land had rest for more. Sorry about the formatting on that. When I copy verses from my Bible program, it copies those over sometimes. Uh, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. So it kind of gives you the impression that they had the land um, when you read passages like that. But then you read other passages in Joshua, and it says they had the land, but they never dispossessed the inhabitants of the land. And so they never really established what Israel was supposed to be. A couple of things uh, in the New Testament. This is harder to triangulate in the New Testament because there's not much mention of land. There is no mention, really, specifically. Uh, the term land is rarely found in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word or words designating the land appear more than 1,600 times, but in the New Testament, fewer than 50 um, appear. And then Wellam said this, In the old creation, God first made the place where we live, and then he made the creatures to live there. In the new creation, however, God will first make his new people, and then he will make the home where they will live. The priority of the New Testament is on how God is making a new people, and the land theme is secondary to this. So I think that's instructive and helpful um, as well. So the accent and emphasis of the New Testament then is on the people who are inheriting this new heavens and new earth. The, the land promises just kind of dissolve in the New Testament, really. And it gives way as, as far as accent and emphasis um, to this new thing that God's doing uh, through the new heavens and the new earth. All right. I think I'm going to stop there. Um, I have more, but we'll stop there uh, for the sake of everybody's. What, what's the old saying? The, uh, the mind can only endure, the mind can only absorb what the backside can endure or something like that. Um, so I know we're, we're probably hitting, uh, you know, critical mass um, at some point here on how productive this is actually going to be. Um, so I'll stop there. Um, I'll... Uh, yeah, we'll just we'll call it um, at that. I'll hang around if anybody wants to talk or argue or show me where I'm wrong or whatever um, you want to do. Uh, thank you guys for your attentiveness. This has been fun. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed it as well. Um, I, I meant to say at the get-go, at the beginning of this, I really, if you come in with a different perspective, I, I appreciate that. And I so much appreciate being in a place where we can actually have conversations about this stuff. And nobody's mad. At least nobody's told me they're mad. Um, if you are. It's just great. Um, part of my, when I was looking at Sunrise um, and talking about coming here, part of what I was trying to do, even in my questionnaire that I read you earlier, is figure out, is this a place where you can actually have conversations? Um, and I'm not, we're not talking about the gospel here. We're not talking about substitutionary death of Christ. We're talking about issues that we see as important, significant. We like them. We, we're not undermining those. But we also see them as secondary to a gospel issue. And so I really appreciate an environment where we can do that and we can learn together. So thanks for that. Why don't I pray for us? Yeah, Ty. Kyle, would you say again where you're putting this slide? Yeah, alankagel.weebly.com. Let me see. Um, Yeah, if you go to alankagel.weebly.com. 
Um, that's my Weebly. I use that for uh, um, some classes I teach. Uh, so if you go see the top right, um, uh, actually blog right there in the middle, the, the middle one right there. So I just I just pick uh, blog at the top, and there's the there's the two slides, and I'll also add my slide deck from this afternoon um, on there. Okay. Weebly with a B, W E E B as in boy, L Y, Weebly, yep. Like Weeble wobbles, yep. Weebly, yeah. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thanks for some time that we can spend together, and thanks for your grace, and we thank you for the great hope of your return. And as we look at these issues, this is it, it can get complicated, it can get confusing. Um, Lord, and I, I think you've shrouded some of this intentionally with a little bit of mystery to keep us dependent on you. Help us to not go beyond what's written in your scripture. Help us to not reach conclusions that aren't firm and aren't scripturally and biblically grounded. And Lord, I pray most of all that as maybe this has awakened a desire in some to study these things and maybe they've never really looked seriously into this before, I pray that they wouldn't lose the point that we talked about right at the beginning, that we would live holy lives, that we would be ready, that we would be eager to see the return of Jesus, and that it would force us to, to think more about you, our Lord, and that it would force us and make us worship you and make us want to be in your scriptures. So God, that's our aim, uh, not to prove a point, not to win an argument. So we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray the same in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, everybody.